understand this is a fiery audience. Is that correct? Are we feeling fiery, Dublin? Good, because we are going to need to be on fire if we are going to win the future that we need and deserve. Um, I'm so delighted to be back here. I want to thank Martin and the entire team um, from the International Literary Festival who organized my last visit here and have done such a beautiful job hosting me again. I want to thank the wonderful team at Penguin Ireland and my dear friend Lorna Gold, a visionary climate leader, climate justice leader, and a wonderful author as well. We first met um, at Vatican, of all places. <laughs> Weird for me, um, as a secular Jewish feminist, as you can imagine. <laughs> Are there any, any um, climate justice activists in the crowd here tonight? Are there a few? Do we, have any, do we have any student strikers in the house? Yeah? A few? How about any fossil fuel divesters in the house? Anybody? All right, that's pretty good. How about Extinction Rebellion? Yeah? <laughs> Well, that was good, good. Um, well, it's been a few years, and it's interesting because things have changed just in the three years since I was last out talking about the need for a transformative response to the climate crisis, something I've been banging on about for a long time. Um, here in Ireland, the, the active climate change deniers aren't as thick as where I'm from. Uh, I live in the United States now. Um, but I certainly encountered in, you know, in the recent past what I've come to think of as soft denial. So uh, the people who don't deny the, the science, they claim to, to believe in it, of course, um, but they definitely, definitely uh, took exception to any argument that you needed to change our economic system, um, change the building blocks of society to face this crisis. I've, I faced a lot of pushback about that idea. I was told, no, we can do this with a carbon tax, just a little tweak here, a little you know, cap and trade there. And now what I find as I'm talking um, to journalists in particular, that that pushback is really gone. And the main um, resistance that I'm facing has to do with the idea of having any hope at all. Um, I, uh, I, I keep being sort of accused of being hopeful. Um, uh, and <clears throat> it's really strange. It's like we've skipped over uh, where we've gone straight from denial to doom without even pausing to actually try to do the work. Um, and I've been trying to figure out what is going on with that and why there is almost like a kind of anger at the idea that we actually could do something, that it is not too late. Um, I was speaking in Boston recently and I was accused on the radio uh, uh, the, the presenter said, you have this cauldron overflowing with hope. Um, which I thought was an interesting choice of words. Like, I don't know quite what he was trying to imply. We were very close to Salem at the time. Um, but the truth is that I don't just have hope in my cauldron. Um, I, have, I, have a, a, I have a lot of other things in there. 
Um, and I'm sure many of you do too. I've got some terror. Um, I've got some terror at where we are headed if we just keep on keeping on in the exact same way that we are doing right now. And this is the strange thing about the climate crisis, is that there is no red button that we have to push in order to bring on catastrophic outcomes. All we have to do, right, is just nothing and just keep doing exactly what we're doing into the future. And the impact of that is catastrophic. So I've got, I've got fear in there. And I also have grief. I have a lot of it. It sometimes feels completely overwhelming when I think about what we have so needlessly lost and who, the people whose lives will never come back. And it didn't have to happen. We had all the information. We had the capacity to act. We had technology that we could have marshaled. And we didn't do it. So I feel a lot of grief at what we have lost. And I also feel rage. That's in the cauldron, too. Um, I feel rage, like you saw in the video, at the fossil fuel companies who did this research in the late 60s and 70s, knew exactly what they were doing, modified their drilling rigs to um, account for rising sea levels, and yet poured millions and millions of dollars into our media ecosystems, spreading doubt, um, buying full-page ads in newspapers, saying the science isn't in, we don't know, let's not be rash, and losing so many years that we can't get back. I have rage about that. I have love in my cauldron for the natural world, for the miraculous and brilliant creatures who call it home, including us two-legged, supposedly big-brained ones. I have a lot of love in there. And I do have hope, too. And I have hope because there is still a path. It is still possible to bring about the kind of future that we tried to show in that film. And we made that film because we realized that, you know, Hollywood has really failed us. In many ways, um, literature has really failed us. So many of the most vivid pictures of the future we have given take social and ec ecological breakdown as a given. And this is supposed to be some kind of a warning, but after enough repetition, it starts to feel like prophecy, right? So we thought maybe it'd be a good idea to show people a vision of another kind of future. Um, <clears throat> but we aren't going to get that kind of future um, without some fire, because it takes a lot of courage, it takes ambition, it takes determination, and we really do have to be on fire for it. So my, my main feeling right now in 2019 is just the weight of our historical moment, what it means to be alive and breathing in the handful of years left on the climate clock when the fates of so many hundreds of millions of people rest in the balance of what we do or don't do in the coming decade, which isn't to say that you know, there, after that, all is lost. But it's a really big deal whether or not we do this. A year ago, 
the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with their 1.5 report, their report about what it would take to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is what our governments said that we should do when they all went to Paris in 2015 and, um, and signed the Paris Accord. They said that we would do everything possible to keep temperatures below two degrees Celsius or 1.5 if possible. And it turns out that it would be far preferable to keep temperatures below 1.5 because we have warmed the planet by a mere one degree Celsius, which doesn't seem like that much. But of course, we are already seeing a huge amount of loss and a huge amount of disruption. And in this report, they said if we want to do this, if we want to meet this target, we would need to cut global emissions by 45% in 12 years. And of course, they said that a year ago, so now it's 11 years, because that's what happens with time. Um, even if everybody's talking about Brexit, it marches on. So we are talking about basically cutting emissions in half um, before 2030 and total decarbonization by 2050, and this is a global target. Right? And under the UN framework, um, we don't all do the same thing. We have common responsibility for this planet, but it is differentiated because there are some countries that have been burning carbon on an industrial scale for a couple hundred years. <clears throat> so we need to move faster. And that's why this next decade matters so much about whether or not this is really going to be a catalyst for the entire world to decarbonize by 2050. And so one thing that is very, very clear if we are going to come anywhere near these, these targets is that there can be no new fossil fuel infrastructure. That includes no new gas term terminals, not in Shannon, not anywhere. <laughs> it means no new gas exploration. <laughs> in any of your waters. And I understand that there is some confusion out there about whether or not gas is a fossil fuel. It <laughs> is a fossil fuel, and it is a very potent fossil fuel, uh, especially in the short term. And that short term matters, because these are the years before we get this under control. So I feel the huge weight of our historical moment, and I feel it every minute of every day. And this, of course, is not just about Ireland. I come from a continent where Politicians are oh, either, well, we'll come to that. <laughs> um, but but we, have, um, we have this very, very short window. And if we did absolutely everything possible, all the good things, right, um, it would be an epic task to pull this off. I'm going to be honest with you. <clears throat> um, but that is not what is happening. We are not dousing the flames of climate disruption. We have some countries that position themselves as climate leaders. I am Canadian originally, um, and my Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who may or may not be re-elected on Monday, um, positioned himself as a major climate leader. He went to Paris when, the, when those accords were being negotiated. He put his hand on his heart and said, we're back. And then one of the things he did is he went and bought himself a 
massive pipeline from the Alberta tar sands that was facing so much opposition from indigenous people um, that the company backed out and said, we can't build this. And so the government stepped in, spent billions of dollars to rescue this so that they could triple the pipeline's capacity because what this so-called climate leader plans to do is increase production of one of the dirtiest fossil fuels on the planet, oil from the Alberta tar sands by 40%. This is what passes as climate leadership, right? Um, and this is one of the problems with the age we are living in because Trump has set the bar so low that anybody can look good by comparison. And I think that this is something you're struggling with here in Ireland as well. Because of course we are in an extraordinary moment where we have this very narrow window where we should be focusing all of our energy on turning things around, and yet in many countries right now, the men who are rising to the most powerful positions in their respective lands are not only not even making any kind of a show of putting out the flames, they are full-fledged planetary arsonists, seemingly gleeful about the last stages of destruction. We have Trump rolling back virtually every environmental law he can, cracking open public lands and seas to unrestricted drilling, trolling Greta on Twitter, ogling Greenland because it is interesting. You remember he offered to buy it. Um, he's interested in Greenland because thanks to climate change, which he supposedly denies but don't believe him, um, the, the, the oil and gas underneath, underneath the ice is becoming accessible, and that's why he's interested in Greenland. In Brazil, we have Jair Bolsonaro, who ran on a platform, and by the way, Jair Bolsonaro should not be president of Brazil. Lula da Silva should be president of Brazil. Lula da Silva is the most popular politician in Brazil. He was railroaded in an extremely corrupt trial, he was taken out of that election, so he was not able to run. Every, sh every poll showed that he would have beat Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro ran, uh, ran on a campaign um, openly attacking indigenous people, saying that he was going to roll back indigenous rights and crack open the Amazon to cattle farming, to soy farming, and to unrestricted resource extraction. In Australia, we've got Scott Morrison, famous for entering into the House of Government with a big hunk of coal, saying it's good for humanity, and that's why Australia is going to dig the world's largest coal mine. We have very dangerous men rising to these extremely powerful positions, showing open disdain for democracy, praising each other for being strong men, tough guys, as Trump wrote in his now infamous letter to Turkey's Erdogan. We've got Modi in India, um, big pal of Trump's. They had a rally together called Howdy Modi in Texas recently. Duterte in the Philippines, I could go on. We're seeing a recipe repeat in many of these countries where these strong men figures <clears throat> define an in-group, a protected group, the, 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 the so-called real citizens of each of these countries. And then they define the out-groups within their countries and also on the borders of those countries. And these are the criminals, the drug dealers, the, the, the exiles, the illegitimate, the illegals, the frightening others, the diseased, and Trump's favorite word, the invaders. And all of this hate makes it 
supposedly illegitimate to attack these outgroups with terrifying force. And of course, we know that this is happening in many contexts. In Australia, they really pioneered this with the offshore detention camps. And this model was then embraced by the European Union, championed most of all by Salvini, intercepting the boats, not letting them reach Europe at all, and outsourcing the patrolling of the waters to the so-called Libyan <clears throat> um, Navy, which is really a collection of warlords and taking migrants to detention camps in Libya that deserve to be called concentration camps. Now, Trump is embracing the same model, building these camps in Texas, and also making deals with Central American countries who he has cut hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to, much of which was going to places like Guatemala in the midst of drought to help keep farmers on their land and saying to these desperate countries now, we have a new business proposition for you. We'll pay you to jail our migrants before they ever reach the United States. So what we are seeing is majority white continents and countries um, saying to desperately poor countries, in many cases desperately poor because of policies that our governments have pursued and wars that our governments have waged, and, and, and proposing as a development model the incarceration of migrants. <clears throat> now we have, you know, I see these forces, <clears throat> I see these forces as kind of twin fires. We have the literal fires of the climate crisis, of climate disruption, um, the storms and the droughts, and of course the wildfires. But we also have the political fires, these fires of hate that are also beginning to rage out of control, that are also leaping from one country to another. And I think we need to understand that it is not a coincidence that these twin fires are raging at the same time, the planetary ones and the political ones. They are fueling each other. It is not a coincidence that at the very moment when climate change ceases to be a problem off in the distance, a future crisis, and becomes a knocking down the door crisis that we are in, that we are living, that in this moment, um, people are feeling a profound sense of unease. And it isn't just climate disruption. It is also the legacy of four decades of neoliberal economics, which has waged war on labor standards, which has waged war on the social safety net, which has people stressed and feeling like the gap between the winners and the losers in this incredibly divided economy is so huge that they have to do everything possible to end up on the winning team because losing is so unthinkable. And people are feeling frightened and they have no control. And even if they claim that they don't care about climate change or they, came, or they claim to be denying it, it is not possible to not be unsettled with the fact that our collective home is in pain, is in crisis, we all know this on some level. Every animal on this planet knows it on some level. And what these politicians, what these demagogues are doing is harnessing that fear, that loss of control, that feeling of precarity, and they're coming in and they're turning people against each other and they're saying, this is the enemy. Don't look up. Don't look at what we are doing. Look, don't look at our plunder. Just blame the most vulnerable. We'll give you back control. Take back control, as the Brexit campaign said. They're running election campaigns promising to build walls, 
waging war on their political opponents and the press. It is not a coincidence that this is all happening at the same time. And as we attack one another, and as we are in the constant chaos of their distractions, they are free to get on with the real business at hand, which is plundering the last protected wildernesses on this planet from the Amazon to the Arctic which of course fuels those planetary fires further, the droughts and the superstorms, the floods, the fires that force millions to flee their arid lands, the fires that intensify armed conflicts, which also fuels migration, which in turn is used to fuel those fires of hate. And I just want to read a very quick extract from the introduction of this book. The rapidly escalating cruelty of our present moment cannot be overstated, nor can the long-term damage to the collective psyche should this go unchallenged. Beneath the theater of some governments denying climate change and others claiming to be doing something about it while they fortress their borders from its effects, there is one overarching question facing us. In the rough and rocky future that has already begun, what kind of people are we going to be? Will we share what's left and try to look after one another? Or are we instead going to attempt to hoard what's left, look after our own, and lock everyone else out? In this time of rising seas and rising fascism, these are the stark choices before us. There are options besides full-blown climate barbarism, but given how far down that road we are, there is no point pretending that they are easy. It's going to take a lot more than a carbon tax or cap and trade. It's going to take an all-out war on pollution and poverty and racism and colonialism and despair all at the same time. So I feel the weight of history. I feel it every day. But here is why I do still have a little bit of hope in my cauldron. <laughs> and please listen to me because it is important. I don't believe that we are living in a time of just two fires. I believe that we are living in a time of three fires. There is a third fire, and it is also blazing, and it is our fire. It is the fire of movements coming together across borders, completely uninterested in questions of citizenship or papers, and only in humanity and they're spreading around the world. It is the fires of the youth climate strikers, who just a few weeks ago had seven million people around this globe participating in climate strikes, which is by far the largest climate action in the history of this planet. Give yourself a hand for that. <clears throat> Ours are the fires of Extinction Rebellion, out there, <laughs> who have opened up a place for people to, re to feel and realize that they are not the only ones who understand that Brexit is not the only emergency. Um, ours are the fires of the indigenous rights movement around the world who are putting their bodies on the line as they always have to protect rainforests and to stop pipelines and other extractive projects. And ours are the fires of the anti-fracking movement, a global movement which right here in Ireland won an incredible victory, a total ban on fracking. Thank you. 
Now we just have to make sure that that includes imported fracked oil. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter where it came from as long as it's fracked. Ours are the fires of the fossil fuel divestment movement, another global movement which won another incredible precedent-setting victory here in Ireland. This is the first country to have ever passed a law that requires that your sovereign wealth fund divest from fossil fuels. So give yourself a hand for that. And ours are the fires of the global climate justice movement in the global south and in frontline communities, overwhelmingly communities of color in, around the world who have the dirtiest industries in their backyards and who have been fighting for a justice-based response to the climate crisis for many decades. And that is what created the foundation for what we are now calling a Green New Deal. So we have, <laughs> we have, we have some power here, and I want us to feel that power. I called the book on fire because that is what we need to be. As I said, we aren't going to win the future we want if we are sort of kind of in favor of it on a good day. We are up against some powerful foes in the fossil fuel companies and the governments that represent them. And we are not going to win that future unless we find our own fire. And I'm not talking about the fires of destruction and annihilation that I spoke about earlier. I'm talking about the fires of creation, the fires um, where all of life comes from, right? That great ball of life-giving fire in the sky that could also be powering so much of our energy if we just had the political will. You know, fires and forests aren't always destructive. Uh, many indigenous people have used fire for millennia to clear away um, the debris and make room for new growth and have more fertile soil out of the ash. And that's the kind of fire, the kind of life-giving fire that clears away debris and makes room for new growth that we need to find inside of ourselves and we need to find in our movements. And that means that we need to figure out what the debris is that is standing in the way of really stepping into this historical moment with everything that we have. Because I think that we all know that we all have some debris to clear away. Some of it is internal. You know, maybe it's a fear of looking silly, you know, if you really join a movement with both feet. You know, it's a little bit easier to go to a lecture than to go to a direct action. And we live in a culture that vilifies activism, so it's easy to feel silly. Or maybe it's just a fear of falling behind in that incredibly unequal society that I was talking about earlier, and that's a really understandable fear, but we need to find our priorities and find our fire and clear away that debris because we have to rise to this moment. Or maybe it is a fear of our own emotions, like what would happen if we actually let ourselves feel what is at stake here and what has already been lost and what we fear for our future and, and our children's futures and the futures of the, of the children that we love. That's scary if you open up that door. Maybe the emotions will never stop. So we need to locate what that debris is. We need to work on clearing it away because we do not have a choice but to rise to this moment. 
And we have a lot of debris on the outside to clear away. And that's what we have to do because we have to build movements that come together that aren't about protecting their brand identities, that are about winning the future that we need. And that is going to mean coming together in ways that burn bright and hot enough that they are capable of, of clearing away the debris of those deniers who are still out there spreading doubt and misinformation, the hard deniers and the soft deniers. We need to clear away that debris. We also need to clear away the debris of the distractors, the ones who are constantly giving us something else shiny to look at, something else distracting to talk about so that we are not focused on the weight of our historical moment and what our purpose has to be right now. And we also need to clear away the debris of those folks I was talking about earlier, the doomers. We sometimes call them the doomer dudes, telling us that it's all too late, that we may as well just let it burn anyway, get a good view. And of course, that comes from a position of tremendous privilege. And it isn't true. All is not lost. We still have time. And we need to clear away the debris of the doomers. And most of all, our fire needs to clear away the debris of the dividers, turning us against one another when we need to be more united and more powerful than we have ever been before. And um, I want to leave you with a quote from, that some of the student strikers use. They say, Greta was the spark, but we are the wildfire, and that is what we all need to be. We need to be the wildfire. Thank you. Noemi, that was amazing. I've had the pleasure, obviously, of reading your book. Um, most people here tonight have picked up their copies, so I've got a bit of an advantage on all of you. <laughs> But you've covered an awful lot there already in, in your uh, introduction. Um, that, that phrase about clearing away the debris, I, I just love it. And I think we can all agree that one person who you talk about a lot in the book who has certainly cleared away debris is uh, Greta Thunberg. You, in the book, you talk about the fact that she has... She, she's done one, she's moved forward by naming the crisis for what it is. The emergency is an emergency. What, what should we, let's say as adults, what would you say is the way that we need to be responding to the crisis? We've seen the climate strikers out yeah. and they're young people. They're, yeah. they're responding as as young people to this crisis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Should we as adults be responding in the same way? Um, well, um, yeah, I do write about Greta in the book, and I write about the, the, student, the, the student strikers in the book, and, 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 talk, and write for a long time before I even mentioned Greta's name, actually, because this really is... Um, it's, it's, it's a leaderful movement. There are so many, you know, in every community, there, there, there's maybe one, maybe two young people who are just holding it down. And um, it just, it takes so much leadership to, to be that person. And I love seeing the 
sense of community among these young leaders. And, um, you know, I know that Greta feels a lot of discomfort at how much of the media focus has been on her personally. And, you know, she, she knows that there's, uh, that there's an unfairness there in being, you know, a white European saying something that a lot of young people and older people around the world have said before and are saying now. I mean, what Greta has done is bring this existential, this sense of, of, of existential crisis into these spaces like Davos and, and, and the United Nations. Um, and, and I think there's something in the way that she speaks that is so completely uninterested in kind of performing for the audience or looking for approval or trying to be cute. And I think that our culture actually doesn't have, is so shocked to see a, a, young, a, a young woman behave that way because hmm. girls are taught from such a young age to be cute and likable. And, and there are young women in our pop culture who reach celebrity status, but they're performers, right? And, and there's something about the fact that Greta is such an anti-performer that she basically spits disdain at the audiences she speaks for, and all she wants to do is communicate information. And yet they keep inviting... shocking. Yeah. It's shocking. And like, yet they keep inviting <laughs> her back. It's, yeah, there's something interesting going on there. But the fact that, you know, I, I do think that we have to sort of problematize that, that there have been other prophetic voices who have spoken with incredible clarity, particularly from the global south, in these UN spaces. Like, you know, think about that. I know you know this speech, Kathy Jetner Kujenner from the Marshall Islands, who spoke in New York in 2014, a young mother um, holding her nine-month-old baby, reading this poem, because Kathy's a poet. And, you know, it, the alternative media played it. Um, but it didn't go viral, it didn't become a sensation, she didn't get a platform, she should have a platform. And she was speaking, she was, fight, she was talking about fighting for her life and fighting for her child's future. Um, so these are not new emotions, and so, <laughs> um, but there is something that is, that is happening now. Um, it is, there is something that is tipping in just the number of people who get it. This is no longer like, an issue for climate activists. This is an issue that everybody, or a whole lot of people, are feeling like this is their issue. Um, and those that number, seven million people, um, is really staggering. But what's most staggering about it, I think, from an organizer perspective, is, um, you know, we had a big climate march in New York City in, in 2014. We had 400,000 people yeah. on the streets. But I mean, think about that. That that before these climate strikes, that was the biggest climate march, right? Was that 400,000 person march? But that took a year to organize, mm -hmm. and there were big organizations with multi multi million dollar budgets throwing down to get those 400 million people, for, sorry, 400,000 people, on the streets. And there were buses, and there was all of that infrastructure. What's amazing about that seven million people who participated in the strikes is that there wasn't that kind of infrastructure behind it. Um, and it was that sort of spontaneous of like, just grab your neighbor and go, right? Like, who's going? Let's all go. And that's, that means we're at a kind of movement tipping point. And so your question about what do adults do, I think it's really important that, that it what adults do is not the same as what children do. I think, you know, the youth leaders have been very clear that they, they don't, 
they resent the fact that they're even having to raise the alarm. That's not their job. But it's most certainly not their job to fix this. Um, and, you know, have consistently said, listen to scientists. You know, when, when Greta testified uh, in Washington on, on Capitol Hill a few weeks ago, the sum total of her testimony was to submit the Intergovernmental Panel on yeah. Climate Change's 1.5 report from a year ago and just said, read it, you know? Very cool. Which was very subversive because, mm. of course, they haven't read it, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and they and they aren't talking to to climate scientists. So, I think that the responsibility of of adults in this moment is not only to raise the alarm. Yeah. It is that it is to gather in enough numbers and 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 be creative enough in our tactics that we don't. That, that, we, that we declare people's emergency from below. We have needed to do this for a long time. We can't let, we clearly cannot let politicians set the agenda because they have their priorities completely up there. Um, but they will follow, you know, they will follow. And we are seeing this and we're seeing a shift in the polling. You know, you told me backstage that, 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 that you know, according to some polls, people in Ireland are now saying climate change is their number one issue. Same thing is happening in Canada, same thing is happening in the US. This is a sea change. A year ago, if you did a poll, you would, you, it, people would rank climate like number 19th or 20th on their list mm. of priorities. So what that said to politicians was, this is an issue I can talk about and do nothing about and pay no political price. Because if it ranks at the bottom of your priority list, mm. it doesn't matter if you say you care about it, because if you deprioritize it, that means that there won't be a political cost. But if people say this is as important as healthcare or as important as jobs, then you can't afford to, to, to act that way. So things are changing and, and there is an opening. But in my experience, it's actually, it can be really dangerous for you to be in one of these moments where suddenly everybody's there. It's like suddenly everyone's in the streets. We had this with Occupy Wall Street, the movement of the squares, Arab Spring, these moments where all of a sudden it tips. And if those movements are not ready with their agenda of what we want instead of this broken system that we're calling out, then it creates a political vacuum that can be filled with very regressive forces. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this. I mean, they certainly saw it in Egypt. Um, you know, Southern Europe, you know, it, 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 you know when, 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 when social movements just had a no, you know, my last book was called No Is Not Enough for precisely this reason, because, because we live in a time of rising right-wing fascism. So it is actively dangerous to just declare an emergency and, and not say what you want to do about it, because there's different ways of responding to this emergency. We're, we're seeing a, a rise of eco-fascism, um, and, and you know, the Christchurch killer in, in March, you know, went into a mosque and killed 50 people at prayer, more than 50 people, 53. And he wrote in his manifesto that he was an ethno-nationalist eco-fascist who wanted no immigrants going to majority white countries because he saw it as a great replacement. He's concerned about the environment and his response is this. All right. So I'm sorry. It is actively to all love to 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 XR, but it is actively dangerous to just say declare an emergency to the politicians who we damn well know are not to be trusted. And we we have been working for decades. The climate justice movement has been working for decades on an agenda to fill this space. And what we all need to be doing is writing our own Green New Deals and organizing in our communities and saying what we want. 
and not waiting for somebody to fill that vacuum because we've been down that road before and it ends badly. Let us yeah. not do that. And I think, I mean, you've, you've just come from London where this is such a, yeah. a burning issue, let's say, <laughs> particularly this week. Yeah. And we've seen people getting arrested, but we also saw a lot of um, almost like a backlash already from people in London, the yeah. people gluing themselves to the, the train, the man who climbed on this train. Is, yeah. as you say, like, is there a danger in, like, in a sense, raising the alarm, but not being sure about, or not being clear about what we want, what we want next? So I think, there, I think we have to be clear on what we want next. We have, to, we have to have democratic processes that bring everybody along, um, especially workers who, have, who are under enormous stress and have rightly come to see climate action as a sort of bourgeois pursuit and have come to equate climate action as something that just makes life more expensive because the only climate policies that they have been exposed to are neoliberal climate policies that increase their electricity costs or increase the price at the pump. And you know, people are, are on the edge, right? This is what we are seeing. And so you know, in France, when Macron, um, you know, <laughs> the sort of poster boy of neoliberal rule, tax trade union rights, imposes economic austerity, hands out tax breaks to corporations and millionaires, and then says, oh, and my climate policy is I'm going to you know, impose a petrol tax. Look at what happened, right? Um, so, so that's the moment that we're in. That's how on edge people are. So yeah, I mean, attacking, going into a working class neighborhood in London at rush hour when people have zero hour contracts and if they're a minute late, they're not going to get paid and, and doing a stunt like that is, um, I mean, tone deaf isn't the right word. It shows that this is not a movement that is connected enough to the people who are most impacted and, and have the most to gain and lose. Um, and I mean... And I'm not against direct action, and I've been arrested in direct actions against pipelines, and I'll be arrested again. But there needs to be a clear narrative of what we are doing. You know, during, in Occupy Wall Street um, in New York, you know what they did? They, they, they blocked open the turnstiles and gave people a free ride of the subway. Now, if you're fighting for free public transit, which I think any climate movement should be, it's a better idea to get arrested for giving people access to what we all should have, which is great free public transit, than keeping them from getting to work. That's, yeah. And obviously, I, I think the other, like, this, I think the Extinction Rebellion and all these climate movements are, it's, it's happening so fast. Yeah, it's happening. I think that's part of the, yeah. the, the no, thing that we're seeing. Sure. That there's And there's maybe some, like, not bad decisions, but like no, ill-thought ill thought through decisions, yeah. but we need to learn from Yeah, them. exactly. And, 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 and they have apologized, and they know it was a bad decision. And, um, but I think that there needs to be a, deep, a deeper yeah. soul-searching around just how bad things are and just how on edge things yeah. are yeah. And, and how important it is that, that there be a really clear narrative to the kind of direct action that we're doing, right? And I think it's, for me, have, like yourself, I've been around in the climate movement for too long at this point. 
And I think there's, there's a real issue now of how do we kind of bring more unity amongst different groups, and you yeah. talked about that. Um, because there's, there's new groups, there's more direct action, mm -hmm. uh, there's more kind of challenging, like, uh, at a legal level. And yet, there's, there's a lot of wealth and a lot of knowledge in the older climate movement, which are perhaps feeling more restricted because they're, like, they're, they're, they're NGOs, they're, they're kind of bound by legalities and whatever. So there's this kind of... Um, Mm -hmm. It's not quite a dilemma yet, but there's, there's definitely, um, I, I'd say, a need to bring a lot of that different thinking together. Is that something you see as well? Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we need, like, activist ecosystems, but I don't think it can just be, like, let a thousand flowers bloom. Like, I actually think we need to be strategic and understand what parts of the movement are doing what so that we are going in the same direction, right? So yeah, there's gonna be people who are doing the think tank work and then there's people who are going you know, to be doing lobbying, but we want connections between the people who are taking risks and getting arrested and the people who are doing the lobbying because what if they're lobbying for things that those, peop that, that those people don't want? So we need a more coherent movement and I honestly think that one of the big problems we have and is, is just the way in which the sort of corporate logic, you know, it's been almost 10 year, 20 years since No Logo came out. It, it, this December, it'll be exactly 20 years. And one of the biggest changes since I wrote that book about branding, um, about corporate branding, is the way in which that logic of, you know, think of, uh, of um, you know, having your, narrow identity and then just sort of broadcasting that di identity, you know, on every available surface and the sort of the kind of growth logic of inside branding, the way that logic has migrated from something that corporations and celebrities do to something that every person is supposed to do now on social media and every nonprofit and every NGO now acts like a brand, right, and thinks like a brand. And the problem with branding is there's a few problems with it. One, to be a good brand, you, um, you need to stick to your brand. So you need to have your brand identity, and then you need to repeat it, right, which is good if you're trying to sell running shoes, but if you're trying to change the world, it's a huge problem that you're just repeating and doing the same thing over and over again and not evolving, right? We actually need to be bad brands. Um, we need to have no intellectual copyright. <laughs> um, we need to not just repeat ourselves, but evolve and change and be willing to do that. Um, and we need to be non-competitive, right? The whole point of that, that sort of marketing logic is that you're in competition with all the other brands fighting for you know, the, space and funding and the rest of it. And so I think we, I, I, like, I'm not interested in blaming people for this because I think we are all in capitalism. It's like, the, it's like blaming people for using fossil fuels to get to an anti-fossil fuel protest. We're in the system, we're in the matrix. We're all using it, we're all in it. Everyone's a hypocrite, you know. Um, but the same is true for the way in which people are using the logic of branding to, um, to build their organizations and then starting to be in competition with each other instead of in collaboration. Like nobody became a climate activist to advance their activist brand. They became a climate activist because they were terrified of, uh, of climate disruption. Mm -hmm. And we have to like refine that space and create forums despite the, 
the pressures that we are under to behave this way and kind of name them and figure out how to be strategic and work together. So yeah, not every, not like a, a legal NGO cannot go out there and say break the law. Um, the way a sort of a pop-up, the way Extinction Rebellion was able to do that, right? But now Extinction Rebellion is becoming an international organization and they're gonna have the same problems pretty soon, right? <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's a cycle. Like we are within legal and financial structures that we did not build. But we have to understand that they change us. They change the kind of, you know, organizers that we become. We have to just be more, um, just, we just need to, to, to make it visible for each other and also depersonalize it. So we're not going, you know, this is personal to you, you're a sellout, you're this, you're that, um, and just be like, okay, we didn't build these structures, we're in them, actually, how are we gonna subvert them? Yeah, and to try yeah. and make them work to our advantage exactly. as much as we can. And just work around them when we have Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Yeah. So coming to another like kind of theme that's in the book that really struck me is just the whole thing of um, going fast and slow. Mm. So um, someone we both know, Bill McKibben, uh, talks about the climate crisis. Um, he says, winning slowly is simply another way of losing. And you talked about yourself, about these 10 years that we have to, to have global emissions. So, mm. but the policies that are involved in a Green New Deal involve a lot of working <laughs> together. So it's this kind of conundrum, and I was, I was struck by it reading the book. It's like, how in God's name are we going to get all these different people like, to start to work together? So the homeless campaign and the migrants campaign and the, all the different campaign groups people in this room will be familiar yeah. with and build a, a common platform. Actually, we've tried to do that before, about 10 years ago, if I remember, and it kind of, like, it didn't really go very far. Yeah. Why didn't it? Um, it probably just lost momentum, and some of the reasons that you were talking about there, like, we all just kind of eventually went back into our yeah. various NGOs and got on with the things that we were paid to do yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. How do we kind of, so how do we go fast on this? Yeah. Um, and at the same time, um, go slow enough to keep everybody together? Mm. Well, I think, you know, one of the ways that we can deal with this issue around um, the re-siloing, right? Because, like, these structures are built to keep us in silos. So you've got your climate people, and you've got your housing people, and you've got your feminist people and you've got your migrant rights people and, and everybody's in their sort of silos and then we come together and we're like, we really should work together. We're up against common forces. We understand the, the, you know, we understand the, the, the way the threads connect. Let's do something together. But then there are, we're in these structures where we all just kind of go back, right? So I think there needs to be, I think within organizations, particularly organizations that have resources, I actually think we need to put like dedicated people, like it has to be somebody's job in these organizations to be the glue holding this coalition together. It can't, you know, or else once whatever the catalyst <coughs> is leaves, then people do, do go back into their silos. Um, you know, this issue around how do we, how do we, how do we move fast but also move you know at the speed of trust as and and understand that there that there's difficult history that that we're navigating that you know that 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 that, that you know people have memories of betrayals times they're left out and it's not easy you know people are bringing bringing we're bringing our histories into these spaces um, i think that 
I, I often think about uh, um, something that Leanne Simpson, who's a really important indigenous scholar in Canada, said to me. She talks about um, punctuated transformation, right? That as, you know, we, we, we are going slow, but then suddenly things can move fast. And we're experiencing that, right? Where it's kind of like, I think we wouldn't have predicted a year ago the kind of numbers that we are seeing. So we are in a moment when things change really quickly for the worst and the better. I mean, we wouldn't have predicted Boris Johnson and Donald Trump either, right? But this is where we are, right? Um, and so, so what I like about the Green New Deal framework is that it's actually modeled on a historical precedent when things did move very, very quickly in the 1930s in response to the Great Depression in the US. Um, and I actually think it's more practical in a time of multiple overlapping and intersecting crises like the time we are in, right? We are not in a time when we are just facing the climate crisis. We are in a time when we're facing a massive economic inequality crisis and a, and a, and a crisis of the rising right, and I'm just not gonna go on and on and on, but you know the crises. Um, and so the idea that we should just do it sequentially, I think is actually, even though it sounds pragmatic, like some of the criticisms that I get from the very serious people um, are, you know, yes, 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 you know, I get racism's a problem and, and, and the economy's a problem, but let's just fix climate change and then we'll do that stuff because um, that's, you know, that's, that's the problem that has a deadline and let's just do that. My response is, look at France, look at what happened with Macron, look at what happens when you don't change the economic rules and you just layer climate policies within this unjust system, you get a populist backlash, that's the moment we're in. And it's not just France, I mean, I'm from Ontario, Canada, and we had the same thing. We had a liberal government that, that, that introduced a carbon pricing scheme that was associated with high electricity costs, and now we have our very own Donald Trump, who's the premier of Ontario, he's the brother of Rob Ford, who's most famous for smoking crack and getting away with it. He ran on a campaign to repeal carbon pricing, roll back sex education to 1992 levels, it was intensely transphobic, and give people a buck a beer. Um, mm. And he won, and the first mm. thing he did was roll back that carbon that wow. carbon pricing. So it's happening all over the place. So it's actually more practical, even though it sounds harder, to, to attach it to healthcare, to attach it to education, to um, you know, attach it to the desperate need for affordable housing and better public transit. And we have these historical moments that we can look to of punctuated transformation. I like the, the, the New Deal because it was a moment of huge social mobilization. So it wasn't just like a, some people talk about the Second World War and the Allies coming together and we, those were huge transformations too. You could talk about the Marshall Plan you know, and the reconstruction of Europe. These, that was, those were huge changes too. But the New Deal was, was, top, was, was not just top down. It was also a, a time of massive general strikes and shutting down the ports and this push and pull of social movements and politicians willing to listen. Mm. So I think you need both those. And we, you know, I think what, the reason why we're talking about a Green New Deal in the US election right now is because of this wonderful push and pull of outside inside, young people occupying the, most, the office of the most powerful Democrat in Washington and there being this cohort of young women who had just been elected 
um, who were insurgent candidates who, who ran to take on the establishment of their parties who said, we're with the activists, not with the party, let's do this thing. And then it got so popular that now Bernie Sanders is running on it, Elizabeth Warren's running on it, Kamala Harris, etc. It's so, really extraordinary yeah. to see how it's risen. The, the Sunrise Movement has gone from nothing to being such a powerful force yeah. in the US. And it's often yeah. the story that's not told here. You only hear the Trump story. You don't hear about the Green New Deal and the, the Sunrise Movement so much. But elections can be powerful. And I yeah. know that you, you may be in an election, or you will be in an election soon. And I think that in those sort of porous moments when politicians can't afford not to listen to you, um, that's the moment to have that social mobilization and a clear demand. The Sunrise went into Nancy Pelosi's office and didn't say, we want climate action, we want you to declare an emergency. They said, we want a Green New Deal in line with science, with justice at the center, building on the work of decades of climate justice work. Mm -hmm. And then that was picked up, right? I mean, I'm not saying that this was perfect, but there being a clear demand made all the difference, and now all the candidates had to be responsive to it. So I think when you were in an election cycle, that's the moment to pounce. And I think there's a, there, there's a motivation for people to come together, because if this happens, there's resources on the table in a way that we haven't had in a long time. Mm. And do you think, I mean, that looking at the, the Irish context, obviously we have to look at an EU level, because mm -hmm. many of the, the regulations, many of the laws, many of um, the, po the policies that govern here are European policies right. in the key right. areas. So, I mean, there's, there's a certain amount that Ireland can take leadership on. Yeah. But how, do we, how can we start to build? I mean, there's already the starts of a Green New Deal movement in Europe. How do we build on that? Where do we go from here? And what would you say are like some of the, the key policies? Like if we were to focus, mm. is it about focusing in on key ones or is it about mm. articulating the vision? Well, I think you want to build, I think it's both. I think, I think there needs to be like a story of the next economy. Um, but then, there, then there's a lot of nuts and bolts organizing to be done in every sector, right? I think you know, we need teachers coming together. And this is some of the, some of the work I'm, I'm doing in, in the US right now is working with teachers, working with nurses, you know, to, working with home care workers, because people tend to think of the green jobs as male jobs, and they don't pay attention to the fact that a lot of the work that women do is already low carbon. I love that in the book. <laughs> yes. Um, you talk also about the work of artists yes, as artists. being low carbon. Artists as low carbon workers, absolutely. I mean, we want to have like artists, we're working with like artists for a Green New Deal, farmers for a Green New Deal, church, teachers for a Green New Deal, um, queers for a Green New Deal, like everybody needs to be for a Green New Deal and figure out what it means in, in, you know, in, our, in our specific areas and don't wait for an invitation, you know? Like I have friends in the feminist movement who are saying, yeah, I really support this, but like I don't know how to get involved. And the truth is, that until there is a government that is implementing this, there's not gonna be re real resources. So there has to be a sort of, there needs to be like a Green New Deal table, and then there needs to be a lot of self-organization within sectors and within different groups coming up with the specifics of what it means, but within the confines of, guided by that 1.5 report and 
and with justice at the center, economic, social, racial, gender, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, wow. A lot, a lot to take it's in. It's actually fun. It is fun <laughs> to do. It's amazingly, you know, the, the exercise of actually inviting people to dream about the world that they actually want is pretty thrilling. People don't get asked. You know, I, I had this gathering with teachers and nurses and home care workers about what a Green New Deal would be in their sectors. They had amazing ideas. Nobody had asked them before. And these are like le leaders of trade unions and, 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 and national associations. They've been completely left out. And, 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 and they want to do the work. They really yeah. want to do the work. Um, one question that comes to me, and it came to me in the book as well, is around, like, going back to your kind of no-logo days and the whole kind of consumerism and extraction, and um, that drives our economy. Like, this idea that there's infinite economic growth, and in fact, Mark Carney yesterday in the Houses of Parliament was answering a question to committee, and he said that he still believes in infinite economic growth. Um, even in the face of the collapse of the economy due to the climate crisis, and that um, the the the, the and he's the best of them. That's he's the, the best of thing. them. Yeah. that's the scary thing. Um, it'll be virtual growth. It'll be immaterial growth. Um, yeah, it was very disappointing to hear that. But how do we ensure that the Green New Deal? is not just a, a, let's say, a continuation yeah. of individualized consumerism, but it's really the likes of Kate Raworth, yeah. the donut economics. These, yeah. these are fantastic ideas that need to be translated yes. and incorporated into this Green New Deal. Absolutely, because, because without them, it is, it, it, you, you could find yourself, and in fact, I think you would find yourself in a supremely ironic situation of, of rolling out a Green New Deal and inadvertently increasing emissions. Because if we're talking about, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the IPCC report, they said that to meet these targets, it would require fundamental transformation of virtually every aspect of society in the summary of the report. And, you know, they list agriculture, housing, um, energy, obviously, transportation, building. Um, and if we really are going to transform the building blocks of our society, this is a massive infrastructure project, as the New Deal was. But that burns a lot of carbon, um, and it does generate economic growth. So there is, there are, there has to be some growth. And what we need, what what we need to do is be deliberate about the parts of our society where we can afford growth. Right? I mean, this is why I bang on about the care sector, because we can have growth in that sector. And it's also what's going to make us more resilient in the face of the climate shocks that we've already locked in. And, you know, I've been covering disasters for 15 years, and I've been struck again and again by the blindingly obvious fact that the people who are most vulnerable during hurricanes, during fires, during floods, are the elderly, the disabled, um, you know, obviously the poor. But, you know, I was recently in a, in a community that burned totally to the ground. 14,000 buildings were lost in the, the world's, in, in the, sorry, the, 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 um, the largest wildfire in California's history, in yeah. this town called Paradise, okay. California. And if you look at the list of the 80 people who died, um, they, and they, they list their ages, they're overwhelmingly elderly. elderly. Yeah. Um, this is one of the reasons why we can't leave Climate activism to the young, all you middle-aged people, will be will be the ones who can't Left run. To burn. <laughs> I'm trying this new motivation tactic. What do you think of that? Do you like it? It's a little macabre. Um, 
Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, where was I? Um, <laughs> we're going to open it up yeah, to the audience. Good. Will we do that? Yeah, yeah. on that note. Okay. Um, we're going to open it up for some, some questions um, from yourselves. But first wanted to invite, where's C? C O'Connor. I can't see C, where is she? Hi. Hello, this isn't on. Oh my goodness, oh, I can see her sign. It's not on. Okay, can somebody turn her mic on? And, and also turn the sign the, the right way up. Yeah. <laughs> see, you've got a question for Noemi. I do, do I? Okay, <laughs> I, I'm not sure what it is yet. I guess we'll find out. Um, God, okay. You've given me a lot to think about. Um, thank you um, for the film you showed at the start and for everything you've said. I think my generation are a bit tired of hearing about all of the bad things that are going to happen. I sort of find myself wanting to read The Habitable Earth as opposed to all of this, yes. this doom. Um, it's really hard, so thank you so much for that. I couldn't figure out why I was crying, and then I realized, um, thank you. Yeah, that's all I have to say. I'm sorry. Well done. Just right, right back at you, C. <laughs> thank yeah. you for everything you're doing. You're an incredible leader. Thank you. So it really is open for questions now. There's five roving mics. So if anybody, I can see everybody now. It's great. Okay, so over here on the right-hand side, there's a lady, yep, yep, with a blue and white shirt. Thank you. Hello, thank you Naomi for your tremendous presentation. Uh, I'm a teacher, we're planting 30,000 native trees during Science Week. Yay. <laughs> uh, we're part of the UN Trillion Tree Project Plant for the Planet and our project Easy Treesy invites people to join us. Uh, on public land and my question is can you think of a favorite tree that you might like Ooh. us to uh, organize for you that you could Ooh. find a youngster to plant Ooh. in ontario oh a symmetry project mm. oh nice all right that's lovely thank you for your work um and um i my, my family lives in british columbia um and that's where I feel most connected to the trees. So if you don't mind, maybe we'll work on, 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 a, on getting a Douglas, a new Douglas fir in the ground up there. <laughs> My favorite tree. Thank you. Or maybe a cedar. Maybe a cedar or an arbutus. <laughs> okay, this lady here at the front with the pink shirt. With a hand up here, here, no, 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 down here at the front. Yeah, if you stand up when you want to ask a question, might you help me? Hi, okay. um, my name is Sinead. Thank you so much, Naomi. I'm here with the Dublin Eco Feminists, and we think you're amazing. We're also a coven, so we have a call Woo! too. Yay! Thank you. <laughs> they tried to burn us, but we're still here. We're still here. 
Um, I just have two quick questions. Firstly, um, actually, we have a gas, uh, we have one of our very rare gas finds off the coast of Ireland, and um, currently the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board is investing in it. In, in 2018, 734 million was paid to the Canadian Public Pension Fund uh, by Vermilion, which is a, 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 um, a shell company set up for tax reasons. Um, so I'm just wondering what you'll be doing to make sure Trudeau stops uh, the Canadian Pension Fund investing in Ireland's fossil fuels. That would be great. Thank you. And, <laughs> and uh, secondly, as well, um, I, like I, I just find it fantastic that you, you've kind of um, looked at, uh, like, given such support to Ocasio Cortez. Um, I, I have been, worked in politics before. I'm actually here with Alice Mary Higgins and also Saoirse McHugh. And um, to be honest, I'm very sus deeply suspicious of kind of this kind of. I, I was involved in Occupy, and this kind of refusal, well, not refusal, I suppose, but a suspicion of politics that it's narcissistic, that it's something for ordinary activists who deeply believe in causes not to be involved in them no anymore and to kind of shy away from that. Um, I find that a very, very dangerous thing because, as you said, there is a political vacuum and it's been filled by the right. We can see it with Trump. We can see it in Ireland already with people like Peter Casey or others. So I'm just wondering, what advice would you give to people who... Do, I've, I've just finished reading a fantastic book called Reimagine the Future about basic income and how neoliberalism infiltrated basically all sectors of society. They were just as split as the left, but they were very, very strategic. And one of their strategic ways of getting involved was through politics. And I find it very, very kind of suspicious that we have this lack of involvement in politics. And I think that is part of the reason why Arab Spring or Occupy or other parts didn't fulfill their role. And I would just like to know a bit more about that. So thank you. Yeah. So it's sort of transitioning to politics from the yeah. movement. <clears throat> yeah. Well, th thanks for raising that about the, the Canada Pension Fund. We are having elections on, on, on uh, Monday. And I, I, you can tell I'm confused about who I am because I would live in the States now, but I'm only through the elections and then I'm going back to Canada. Um, and we, what we're hoping for in Canada is, is that the Liberals will hold on to a minority, lose their majority and hold on to a minority so that we don't end up with Conservatives, and that we elect, holding the balance of power, some real climate champions. And what we have for the first time is it is a significant cohort of, of champions who are coming from social movements, um, who are running for, for, for office for the first time. They are unlikely candidates like Alexandria and the, the squad in the States. Um, and, 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 and they are taking that leap into politics for the, the precise reason that you're describing, I think partly inspired by seeing what is possible with if just, a f just a handful of people, right? I mean, they are at war with their party. Nancy Pelosi still calls the Green New Deal the Green Dream or whatever. Um, <laughs> but that hasn't stopped this idea from spreading and becoming so popular that, as I said, you know, the majority of the front runners vying to lead the Democratic Party are claiming that they support it. Now, some of them I would emphasize claiming, but that's not the case for Bernie and it's not the case for Elizabeth Warren. Um, and so it really does matter, just a handful of people mm. who are unlikely, you know, political players going in there with ties to social movements, with ties of accountability to social movements, because I think that's really key. We often sort of strand politicians once they go into politics and we're like, okay, you're not, mm. you know, you, you sold out or you're not one of us. Um, 
But I, th I think it was, it's those ties of accountability that when they do go, go into office, that they are both held accountable and supported once they're there. So, you know, elect yourself some champions. I hear you have elections coming up. And, yeah. uh, and, and if, you're, if you're on the fence thinking about doing it and you feel like you, like you might be able to do it, um, you know, look at, look, at the, look at the ways in which these just in the, these four young women um, are breaking all of the rules, are standing up to these forces that are trying to turn them into something else. They have their own voice. They have not been homogenized. They've held onto their values. They truly represent their communities, and they are so beloved for that because it's such a mm -hmm. kind of new experience. So, yeah, do it. We did make mistakes. We really did. Yep, this gentleman here. Can I, can I just say, in reference to the last issue, never sit on the fence, you only get splinters up your arse. <laughs> and can I just thank you for being a cauldron uh, of hope, Naomi, in terms of what you're, you're doing. We have a phrase in Irish, which is which means every beginning is weak. And I think we're at the beginning of the end of the age of carbon and hopefully of capitalism. My question is around the connection between growth and the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that a, a, a much more attractive but challenging image and vision for the Green New Deal is a resolutely post-growth, post-GNP, post-GDP future. Mm -hmm. Because unless we in the overdeveloped minority world move beyond an economic growth model, that will not allow the carbon and ecological space for the global south. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that yeah. what we need to start articulating is a vision of a post-growth future one which is a more sharing, mm -hmm. a caring, yeah. more localised economy. But I know that's difficult, and I do am concerned, and Lorna picked this up, that the Green New Deal becomes a, a more socially inclusive but still ecocidal mm. growth system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, and this is what, uh, it's a great point, and this is what I was starting to say when I lost my train of thought earlier, <laughs> is that it, it, there really is this risk, um, and, and there hasn't been a really real reckoning um, with it. Um, I, my feeling about growth, as I was saying, is that there are parts that where there will be growth. You can't have an infrastructure project like this without growth. And, 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 and because we live in a society that right now measures progress as any kind of growth and any kind of consumption, that if you suddenly start paying millions of people um, you know, fair wages, then it will just turn into carbon. It will, you, people will just spend it on shopping and then it will turn into carbon. So what we need, and this is, you know, this sort of donut economics idea is, you know, we need to have um, public luxury and private restraints. And here we're talking about over-consumers because it is not everybody who is over-consuming and there are some people who will be able to consume more. Just like during the Second World War rations, the very poor actually ate more under rations, but the over-consumers had, had to reduce. Um, and that's hard, right, when you ask people to sacrifice and that is why it is so important. And even though it seems like a lot, the bonus is your kid goes to a school, you know, and, it, and instead of having 32 kids in the classroom and an incredibly overstressed teacher, they're in a class with 12 kids and the teacher actually can do their job. What a thought, you know. Um, we can identify where we can have abundance, right? And, you know, investing in affordable housing, investing in really great 
public transit that is affordable or free, no joke. Getting cars out of our cities, and I'm not kidding about this. This is, um, this is what's going to improve quality of life. Shorter work weeks, right? I mean, all the social science research shows that you know, part of what drives that sort of frenetic disposable consumption is just not having enough time, right? Mm -hmm. um, not, and it's not because we love plastic, right? It's just that sort of frantic, never enough time. And we also have to make sure that it isn't just women who are doing the cooking and the gardening, um, because there's a long history of that um, during these times <laughs> of crisis. So, so we need a different kind of economy. We need different measures of growth. I think in the short term, we're not going to win this battle. It's a, it's a deep battle. What I, the battle that I'm trying to win is a built-in carbon audit, a regular carbon audit in any Green New Deal, so that w we keep ourselves honest um, as we go. And, and we have to be bound by our emission reduction targets. And so if we find ourselves in the, and I believe that we would find ourselves inadvertently increasing emissions, you know, without confronting the logic of growth, and that's when we would have to deal with these difficult issues around restricting consumption, much more reuse of materials, right? Um, the framework that I talk about in the book and that I've been talking about for a while is moving from a, uh, the gig and dig economy that treats both workers and the planet like trash to a, um, a, a, an economy of care and repair. Um, and so caring for each other, and I've talked about that as these sort of growth sectors, also investing in the, you know, public recreation, access to nature, the arts, all of that where we can have abundance. Um, but the three repairs that I think we need to think about is you know, repairing, repairing the damage we've done to the earth, and that, a lot of that is about planting those trees and drawing down carbon and rewilding and addressing the biodiversity crisis, which is related to the climate crisis, but it is not the same crisis, right? Um, and repairing our relationships with each other, which is the justice piece of this within our countries and between our countries, right? And this is reparation. This is, this is um, saying the people who got the worst deal have to benefit from this transition. There has to be, there has to be that, that, that reparation. Um, and also repairing our stuff. <laughs> we can't be in an economy that just acts as if there is limitless, you know, there, there are limitless resources to extract. And that includes the resources going into solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles. There, we cannot just mine our way out of this because that will once again, um, you know, lead to more devastation um, in, the, in, in the poorer parts of the world. Believe it or not, we're coming to the end of the evening. Oh, okay. It's so I sad. on so long. I, no, no, no. I, th I think we could stay here all night. I certainly <laughs> could and listen to you and ask more and more questions. Because, I mean, I think you've just opened up such an important conversation amongst um, all of us here. Um, and I was saying to Naomi backstage, like, there's no other group in Ireland that can apart from those who are here this evening, there's no better group to have that conversation. But it feels like we're just at the very beginning, because mm -hmm. it's been amazing to have all these people, to, all of us here together. Um, so my kind of final question to you is, how do we take this forward? How do we continue? How, what would your uh, advice to us be to continue this kind of conversation amongst each other? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, are there? Can we invite a few people up? To, can we invite our friends up? We have a few friends that we want to bring up. Just the, we want to invite up some of the key. Yeah, we we you know who you are here. Will you mention? So we've got yeah. C. <laughs> yeah, and Theo and Maud. Yeah, and Sersha. And Iona, if she's still in the room. Yeah. We just... So these these young people are the young people who've been climate striking every week for the past (laughs) 40, 45 weeks. Wow. Um, thank you. Thanks for being here. We wanted to honor you. We wanted to honor your, um, just have you with us up here and, and honor the, just how difficult it is um, to do the work when it isn't trendy and, and when nobody's patting you on the head for it and, um, and when it's cold and rainy as it's going to be very soon. <laughs> um, you, you know, you've cracked open the heart um, of of. Of, of the world and so many people have entered into this space and been inspired and found their, their, their own, I think, their own fear and um, their own hope. And, you know, I think the young people in this movement have been really clear that they're not here to make us feel hopeful, right? Hope is something we have to earn. Um, and, you know, as Lorna said, um, the people who, for whatever reason, wanted to come out tonight know um, that, that, that we are the people who have to do this, that nobody else, and I think this sign says it very clearly, no one's coming to save us, um, our elites are corrupt, um, they have... They have, they, they have lost the, the right to have our respect, and, and, and we are going to have to step in. But this can't be, we can't dump this on young people. Just because young people started this fire, it is not only their torch to carry. We need a multi-generational movement. Um, and every strong movement in history and every culture that lasts is a multi-generational movement. And the other thing that movements that last do is they take care of each other and they allow people to be whole human beings who don't have to be hopeful all the time um, and you know, don't even have to be activists all the time, who are allowed to grieve, who are allowed to have days when they feel hopeless, um, but where people actually take care of each other because this isn't the kind of fight, it's not a campaign. It's not a campaign where there's gonna be an easy win. It is actually a lifelong struggle, and that means that we need to build complex and loving movements where we actually allow ourselves to be whole human beings and where we create opportunities to regenerate um, within our movement so that we can stay in the struggle for the long haul because that is the moment in history um, where we find ourselves. I was heartbroken when Greta said to the UN, you stole my childhood. Um, I've heard that from a lot of the young student strikers, that 
you know, they, they may be getting a lot of attention in the media, but this is not how they want to be spending their days, and they don't want to be living with this terror. And, um, and yet they're giving up recesses and lunch hours and evenings and weekends to do the work that adults should be doing. And so um, I want to say thank you. And I want to ask all of you, and I want us all to ask ourselves, what are we going to do? What are we going to do to step into this moment? Um, you know, are we going to give up weekends? Are we going to give up evenings? Are we, you know, if we are in retirement, are we going to risk arrest? Um, what are we going to do? This is not a spectator sport. Um, and, um, you know, I don't have all the answers about what you can do. All I know is that we can only do this as a true movement. We can't do this as a collection of brands. <laughs> we can't do this as a collection of egos. Um, we actually have to act like a movement, and more than that, we have to act like a community of people who care about each other and care about the living systems on which we all depend. Um, thank you so much for this evening. <laughs>